Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Balter, and I'm still summarizing for you one year's worth of incredible water insights from the 52 experts that appeared on this microphone in 2021. In today's deep dive, you'll hear one voice you haven't heard before. Wayne Barn will be my guest for episode 9 of this season 4, airing next Wednesday, so don't miss out. When included, I'm joined today by 13 experts to discuss water entrepreneurship, a topic that makes a lot of sense when you think of it the way Jacob Bossar explains. And I think we also have a unique product, basically. Drinkwater is such a huge market, so you can dream big. It's not like you have a, a very niche thing that only a few people in the world would need. You have something that everybody needs every day, 7.5 billion people today, and in a few years, about 10 billion people. So it's something big, so you can dream big, I believe. Some industries have to heavily invest in marketing to create a category or a market. For the worst and the best, that's not our case in the water sector. And as Walid Khoury points, that's true in every geography. You have multiple drivers for the African continent, and they might not be immediate, but there are a lot of drivers. First, the urbanization. You know, we're starting first from a very low level of water infrastructure. You have also the industrialization. You're having more and more legislations and enforced legislations in terms of water discharge, water limits, and so on. The demographics uh, with the young people looking for jobs and also Africa is rising in terms of uh, GDP and prosperity. So with all this demand, or to quote marketing guru Gary Halpert, this starving crowd every company on earth is dreaming of, why don't we see companies booming in every corner of the water industry? Paul O'Callaghan actually has an explanation. Everyone was so enthusiastic in water, they all wanted to make a difference. There was inventors, entrepreneurs, investors, and, and yet many of those startup companies failed because they were chasing the wrong market, looking at the wrong opportunity, and they weren't having an impact through their work. And I thought that's, that's a pity because these water challenges are huge. It's a bit of a choice paradox issue. When billions of people lack access to water and sanitation, as we've seen in our deep dive on SDG 6, and when dozens of technologies could solve the issue with their advantages and drawbacks, it's hard to pick one and focus sufficiently to push it through. The biggest or most difficult part is to say, okay, now we take a decision as a company to try to solve certain problems, and not all of them. That may well be the key, as Leah Mobashtek just pointed, because we're an industry that commands commitment and dedication. Like any other, you think? From the point where you take an idea out of a laboratory and you begin your first pilot to the point where it now is right in the middle of the market, there are a hundred or more plants out there and the market's going really rapidly, that whole time frame, that can take about 12 to 16 years. So if you're a startup company today in 2021 and you just did your first pilot, you would expect that maybe in 12 to 16 years time, this would be a mainstream market opportunity that's growing very, very rapidly. Let's unpack the wisdom Polo Kalan just shared. Assuming you have already developed enough to successfully pilot, you would have to commit and push for 12 to 16 years before starting to notice the exciting part of the hockey growth. All of that assuming you've got something in hand that's a smash material. I know that every single water entrepreneur firmly believes that what he's working on is the best thing there was, there is and there will ever be. But facts tell this is very rarely true. Sorry if I killed the mood. Now, if success can never be guaranteed, there are still some boxes you can check to place the most odds on your side. These can be placed in three categories, according to Gaetan Susne. For successful 
innovation investment strategy, you need three things. You need entrepreneurs, you need scalability, which is market, and you need the tech. And for me, these are the three things which will make the water sector successful in the future. Okay, so we have to look at entrepreneurs, markets, and tech. Let's start with the entrepreneurs and with the typical profile they should have, according to Mina Senkaran. You as an individual, if you are going to go on this path and journey that is extremely challenging and you're trying to solve a problem, you have to have the grit, you have to have the resilience, you have to have the passion. Because if without the combination of those three, it doesn't matter how big an idea you're not going to be able to sustain it. Leai Mobersteg and Gaetan Susne add a layer of mindset to this profile. A fool with a tool is still a fool. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not willing to open up to challenge the status quo, I can give you 10 or 20 tools and you will still come up with the answer that you want to hear. Be prepared to take the risk. Believe in yourself and convince people that what you've got and what you've done is the best. The next thing is to prevent falling victim to the shiny object symptom. You know, like that trendy growth tactic or that segue to success that works in the books, as Gilles Toussaint warns us. If you try to take shortcuts all the time, there is a moment where you can get lost. Yeah, at the end, you reach your destinations way after others who took the long road. So what's the solution? Well, simple. Follow this advice given by Gilad Yogev. Get out there, get your hands dirty, install some pumps, do some lab tests, and that's crucial experience for your future engineering career. Okay, so we have the typical profile, the mindset, and the base approach of our water entrepreneurs. Let's add a finishing layer, the ambition. Most entrepreneurs who are coming into the water sector are shy about how they carve the company's projected growth because Investors are traditionally very risk-averse in this sector. This ambition for growth, Mina Senkaran underlines, doesn't only offer us a smooth transition towards the second thrust of our framework, the market, but also underlines how important it is to see that growth as a key performance indicator of something larger, as Mina points out again. The social side of entrepreneurship just means that you're not just addressing a problem that has some commercial value, but it has to have a community impact, it has to have a social impact. How can impact projects be created that have not just a commercial and a social impact, but also impact from a future growth? And how can alternate business models be created for impacting migration around communities where in a lot of underdeveloped regions, that's becoming a huge issue. You can be in that water entrepreneurship game for many reasons. You may want to save the world and look at your growth as a proxy for impact, as Jacob Bossar ironically summarizes. I'm raised as a person that is against capitalism. But to beat capitalism, you gotta become a part of it. How strange that sounds. But one thing's for sure, economical success is integral to sustainability, as Aaron Tartakovsky confirms. Any sustainable business, I believe, cannot be truly sustainable if it's only reliant on incentives, grants, and subsidies. And profit shouldn't be a swear word, but a sign that you're onto something big in all the dimensions it involves, as Gilles Toussaint shares. What I realize is that when you start a for-profit organization, lots of them want to have an impact. Lots of them care about the impact first. But what I learned from all of them is that 
you cannot have an impact if you don't make a lot of profit. In a nutshell, as Luke Butler points, there's nothing wrong with making money in the business. It's, it's very important to be sustainable. I let's get and Susan conclude this second part on market and scalability with a straightforward statement. For me, it's not, you know, the environment against economic or society against the environment. For me, it's everything. So I was never afraid of saying that if you make money in the water industry, then it's good. Now let's look at the third thrust, the technology we will push and develop as water entrepreneurs that will lead to impact and will make a dent in this very special water industry. Is that part easy as pie? Well, certainly not, as Polo Callan describes. It wouldn't be fun otherwise, right? Technology development is a race. It's a race against funding running out, against patents expiring, against competition entering the market, and it's a race against commoditization. The technology race needs innovators, entrepreneurs, typically who build companies around being able to be the only people or a few people who can offer that technology and eventually it becomes more and more mainstream. So when it gets to that point when the knowledge is so widely spread and the art is well known within the engineering community, at that point, the race is over. That's the reason why it takes time to get into the engineering books. But if technology development is a race, you'll need to be ready to take some risks and push your chips on the table again and again, as Jacob Bossard shares from experience. In three years and a half, we've been almost three times bankrupt. Not because we're doing bad, but just we're investing hugely in what's coming. That's what you have to do as well. And that's, of course, to grow as fast as possible. Because for us, growth is equals impact. You can have two approaches there. First, build what Polo Callahan calls a value-driven innovation in his thesis on the dynamics of water innovation. The idea here is to bring something that betters the state of the art and adds value. Now, as counterintuitive as it sounds, that's not the safest bet for success. In a conservative industry with high stakes, it may be hard to convince someone to move from what he knows is working for sure to a new technology with only a 20% saving. Hence, the second approach, identifying a crisis or a hard edge and offering a solution to it. This has better chances of taking off because regulation shall have your back and enforce the adoption of your tech. But as Paul warns all of us, it may also be a bit more dangerous. It's a bit more risky because you need to make sure that there is a crisis, that there is regulation. And we've seen people who think there's a crisis that end up waiting and waiting and waiting and then the crisis never comes. People who think that sludge won't be applied to land or that ballast water treatment would be regulated quickly and of course it was delayed. Um, so that's why those things move quicker but you have to be certain that the conditions are right. The example Paul takes here is very clear. If you had bet on the ballast water crisis with your tech when the hype curve was at its highest 10 years ago, you probably ran out of cash long before it became mainstream as this still hasn't happened in 2021. This is somewhat true nowadays, for instance, with microplastics, endocrine disruptors or PFAS removal. But on the flip side, that's also what brought membrane technologies in the middle of the market in the 90s, when cryptosporidium threatened the intestinal transit of millions of people. So what's the martingale here? Well, easy as pie, right? Just be innovative. Is it really that simple? It's not a magic 
pill that you can just swallow and all of a sudden everybody becomes very innovative and we have this uh, 30 million opportunities popping up. As Leah Moberstech points out, an innovative approach for your tech doesn't have to be this eureka moment where you drop out of your bath naked, draft your future technology that's of course crisis-driven and open your bank account to ensure having enough space to house your future millions. No, as Ravid Levy explains, there's a much more powerful bulletproof approach. It is impossible to copy solutions, but the ideas and the principles and some of the technologies can and it should be adapted from one place to the other. A good bet here may well be to look at our cousin industries and to try to replicate what works best there. The example I've shared a lot on this microphone is energy and its microgrids that could be replicated in distributed treatments in our water world. Want to know more? There's a future short synthesis dealing precisely with this in the pipe, so stay tuned. But back to our topic, now that we've covered our three thrusts, entrepreneurs, market and tech. What's the path forward? Well, maybe, as Walid Khoury suggests, leverage the agility you have as a water entrepreneur, an asset that's often long gone for mainstream players. The small nuance is that multinationals are more prone to go to Asia compared to Africa because they see it as easier to do business. So the sub-Saharan market is kind of left behind because it's too fragmented, too complicated for multinationals to manage. You also need to find your people inside your starving crowd, the core group inside that ocean that is eager to adopt your technology faster and promote it to fuel your growth. In a nutshell, your early adopters. How to find them? Again, Polo Callahan is full of insights. The early adopter, it's a person. It's not a utility, it's not a corporation, it's an individual within that group. And then, is the sky the limit? Well, I let Alexander Lukopoulos manage your expectations. I'm generally, you know, incredibly optimistic about it, but at the same time, I'm not delusional to think that you're going to have a, a billion dollar technology company coming out in the next two years in the water space. Now, becoming a unicorn isn't the only possible outcome. Water entrepreneurs' agility can also become an asset in a major's game to do external R&D or external growth. Simply put, a line for an exit. Or become a knife in a street fight, as Wayne Barn colorfully describes it. The majors are absolutely alert and aware and attuned to the fact that the market at some point will be cannibalized and uh, will be cannibalized by businesses like ours. Typhon would uh, would be a knife. <laughs> so uh, you always want to be uh, a knife in a street fight uh, when, when uh, commercial titans are are fighting it out. Why would you want to follow that advice? <laughs> Maybe because successful entrepreneurs usually experience an exit once in their career, some of them twice, and some unidentified flying objects like Wayne, four times and counting. Wanna know more? <laughs> Don't forget to tune in for season four, episode nine on Wednesday. Did you like this deep dive? Then tell it to your friends and colleagues and share that episode. Successful world entrepreneurs follow certain patterns and you can either find out alone or copy for free from today's experts. And as we've seen, their success is everyone's success as a result of your future impact. So we all have skin in that game. Do you know someone that shall hear this? Then again, it all starts with a simple share and I count on you. If you'd like to further explore the topic, listen to my full interviews with each of the experts featured in this synthesis 
all the links are like every time in the description and if you haven't done it yet make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform so that you don't miss beyond wayne barnes interview the next leg in our journey which will be as i teased it today about distributed treatments thanks for listening and i'll see you next time